Welcome to Everyday Martial Artist, a weekly podcast where you'll join me, Brian Doucet, as I interview a different martial artist each episode and hear their story. Some guests you may have heard of and some you probably haven't. Be sure to subscribe where all your favorite podcasts are available. Also visit our website at everydaymartialartist.com. If you're listening for a specific interview, I sure hope you'll stay and check out the other episodes. A very special thank you to Topher Williams for our custom theme music. And now, the newest episode of Everyday Martial Artist. Everyday Martial Artist is brought to you by KOonline.com for all your martial arts needs. Sparring and safety gear, rank belts, uniforms, weapons, patches, and more. Wholesale supplies made by martial artists for martial artists. Visit us today at KO-Online.com. Hello and welcome to Everyday Martial Artist. I'm your host, Brian Doucette. And as we do every Thursday, we're joined by a brand new guest on the show talking about their life and their journey in the world of martial arts and other stuff they're involved in. My guest today is a certified speaker, trainer, and coach. He's a best-selling author and in-demand international public speaker. He's an executive director and president's advisory council member with the John Maxwell team, a certified human behavior consultant, a real-life management master trainer, and an accredited emotional intelligence coach and practitioner. He's also a two-time martial arts hall and fame inductee. Please welcome my guest today, Mr. John Terry. How are you doing today, sir? Brian, I'm so glad to be here and join you and your audience. Thank you for the invitation. No, I'm glad we're able to do it. So well, how we like to start with all my guests, we want to go back to the beginning. I want to know where where that first interest in martial arts came from, that first spark. Kind of talk about that, like what age and, and where that interest started. You know, you know, Brian, that's a funny story. Uh, I won't give you the extended version of it or we'd be here all night. But <laughs> when I was 13 years old, my parents decided to relocate from Fort Smith, Arkansas to Russellville, Arkansas. So I went from being a big city nobody to a small town somebody, or at least that was what my parents told me I was going to expect. So I was thinking I was going to be welcomed with open arms at this new smaller school. And sure enough, I was. I was welcomed by every bully in the school. And after two or three weeks of getting beat up, uh, I told my parents I wanted to go back to Fort Smith and be a big city nobody where I could live life in obscurity and not be bothered. Well, dad stepped up being the, the man that he was, and he said, I'm going to take care of this. I thought he was going to go talk to the principal. No, he goes and enrolls me in martial arts classes. Well, okay. Back in the, in the early 70s, martial arts was an adult sport, and they didn't typically train anybody under the age of 18. Well, the instructor of the school had just bought some furniture from my dad made an exception and invited me in to uh, be a part of the school. And I walk into a school at 13 years of age. I was probably 70 pounds, 75 pounds soaking wet, about five foot five. And I'm looking at these room full of giants, uh, mostly law enforcement officers, uh, individuals that were uh, either retired military or still serving in the guard. And I'm thinking I'm going to die. That's the immediate thought that came to my mind. <laughs> Okay. So the instructor says, I'm glad you're here. He says, we've got a new student that's just about your size. And he points to the back of the room and there's this beautiful 23 year old girl. I thought it walked out of a sports illustrated swimsuit model issue. <laughs> and at this point I thought I have arrived only to find out that she had just joined class because she had come out of an abusive situation with a husband that was physically abusive. And so she was there to learn to defend herself. So the standing joke looking back now when my dad and I talk about my martial arts journey is he was paying good money for me to get beat up by a girl three nights a week. <laughs> but, but Brian, once I learned to fight like a girl, the bullying at school stopped. Well, there you go. And, and so I tell everybody when they say, why did you learn to fight? I said, well, I learned to fight like a girl. And they look at me kind of funny. And I said, yeah, and I went on to earn two martial arts Hall of Fame inductions and five black belts and five systems over the years. But uh, that's really how it started. 
but it really created a passion for me for the martial arts and learning not only to defend myself well, but to be able to walk with a quiet confidence, knowing I didn't have to be afraid because I could recognize danger when it was before me. Mm -hmm. And I was confident that if I had to face it, I could either talk my way down, find a way to escape, or if necessary, to fight back. Nice. So two-part question. First of all, do you remember what style that was and about how long did you stay in that style? I do. That initial style was Goji Ru. And as I think back, my instructor was Carl Wetzel. He was an incredible man, uh, still a good friend. He's a retired law enforcement officer up in central Arkansas. Uh, Periodically get to see him from time to time. And I stayed in that school for about three years. Uh, Got all the way up to blue belt. No, I got to green belt, was about to test for blue uh, when I ended up graduating high school and moving on to college and took a hiatus for a little while because I was distracted and, and busy with studies. Okay. So what was it about, you know, I think like your first three, four, five, six classes, what really drew you and what made you want to stick with it? You know, as a kid, I grew up in the era of the Green Hornet ah. and watching Cato do all the incredible things that Bruce Lee can do. Who wouldn't want to be Bruce Lee? Nice. And then this, this guy called David Kane or David Carradine showed up doing Kung Fu. Who didn't want to be Kwai Chang Kane? Right. And then you had Chuck Norris doing the Chuck Norris movies. And who didn't want to be Chuck Norris? But I loved what I was learning because it was not only teaching me physical skills that were valuable, it was stretching me mentally and it was causing me to look within and discover there was more within me. What I like to define as my black belt leader within, it was that introduction that let me look inside and see there was more inside of me than what I believed was there. And it gave me that passion and that belief that I can continue to look within and discover gifts and talents that maybe I didn't realize were there. And I can bring them out and I can cultivate those to help continually make me a better version of who I am. Great answer. I like that. All right. So then after high school, what, what was the next part of your martial arts journey? What did you come, come into next? You know, it's funny after high school, uh, I took a hiatus for a while from the martial arts, but still practiced my katas, still worked on self-defense and became a proponent of teaching self-defense classes and began to teach those predominantly to females because I wanted to make a difference. And since women on the high school campus and the college campus tended to be the targets of more abuse and more bullying than the guys did, I wanted to be a resource for them. And that really became a passion that's followed me my entire life. But then ended up getting married right out of college, uh, had some kids, and my kids wanted to start doing what I did. They wanted to start taking martial arts, and I thought, well, why not? And one of the girls that later joined our class that I trained with for several years was now teaching in a school, and that was doing Shore and Rue. And so I enrolled my students, and Rocky kept twisting my arm saying, John, when are you going to get back on the floor with us? And I'm like, yeah, Rocky, I've been there, done that. I don't know that I want to go back and do that again. Well, <laughs> still teaching self-defense, watching what they did. And finally I said, you know, I'm going to get my, my gi out, which at that time was way too small. <laughs> so I ended up buying a new gi, got back out on the floor and had an incredible teacher. And from there started training in shore and Rue, And then from there expanded into other martial arts systems to cross train and have really continued training since that time. So was shore and Rue the first style you attained black belt in? That's correct. Yes. So what do you remember about that first black belt test? <sighs> I remember As I think back into that very first exam, part of the imposter syndrome really rose up. Are you really ready to do this? Is there really that black belt leader inside of you that at this point is deserving to do that? And I spent the night before the test thinking into and, and you know, giving thought to all of the training I'd gone to up to that point. 
And I, I came to the realization, Brian, that yes, I am ready because one of the things my instructor reminded me of is in Shobayashi Shore and Rue, a black belt wasn't a sign that you had arrived. A black belt was a symbol that you were now ready to become a serious student of the art. And I made my commitment that night before that test. I was ready to do whatever it take to show not only my instructor, but the other instructors that were going to be on that panel. I was ready to be committed to a lifetime of learning. And I was ready to commit to learning at a higher level and to show them that I was serious about furthering my practice. Nice. And then, so uh, how high did you get in Shore and Rue? Uh, I currently hold a fifth Dan in Shore and Rue. Okay. And you said in the beginning, you said five black belts. So what was your next style that you joined that you attained black belt in? I had an opportunity to train in an eclectic self-defense system uh, that was Kempo based. Uh, the instructor that had trained under Brian Tracy oh. and he developed, he really stripped all the katas out of that and just taught the self-defense aspects of Kempo and he called it KSD. Oh, okay. And so I had an opportunity to get a black belt in a Kempo self-defense system. Uh, I was also training with the founder of Shiho Karanaru Jiu-Jitsu, who has been a longtime friend and mentor, earned a first degree black belt in that. Uh, Richard Bastillo was my JKD instructor and had an opportunity to certify in his IMB system. Wow. I received a full instructor certification in that system. And then uh, I've had an opportunity to train with the International Krav Maga Association and earn my full instructor certification in Krav. So if you take the full instructor certifications as the equivalent of black belt, mm-hmm. since they don't rank in their system by belts, right. equivalent of five black belts. Yes. Wow. That's impressive. That's so how I'm just curious. I, you know, how was Richard Bostillo to work with? I've, you know, I've heard, I've heard of him. I've, I've never talked to anyone who actually trained with him. I'm just kind of curious. Richard was my friend and he went, I run the United States martial arts hall of fame, uh, been privileged to serve and lead that organization as its president and CEO since 2016, when I took over from the founder and Richard Bastillo, uh, was our uncle Richard, as we referred to him was a part of the organization when I came and he was a regular fixture there. And when I had the opportunity to take the lead in running the organization, Richard came alongside and he said, John, I love what Professor Kale has done up to this point, but I love what you're doing to take the organization farther. And he was just an incredible mentor and friend. And every year he showed up to make sure that we had great classes, to make sure that we had our our camp full of people that wanted to learn, invited several instructors and made some incredible introductions and relationship building for me uh, in a great cross-section of the martial arts. And he was just a joy to work with because he was not only an incredible practitioner of the arts, he loved martial artists and loved to not only teach them the, the fighting aspects, but also the philosophy of what it means to be a leader in the martial arts community. And I value that. And we so regretted losing him a few years ago to cancer. Right. But he was just such a powerful mentor in my life that his influence continues to live on in what we do at the Hall of Fame and through our IMAC association that I run. I've never heard a bad thing said about him. So that's really cool that you actually got to train with him and stuff. But talk just a little bit about the Hall of Fame. Uh, you had mentioned that and I had that in my notes here. Just a little bit about you know what they do and you know how they go about choosing inductees a great question. The United States Martial Arts Hall of Fame has been around since the year 2000. It is sponsored by the International Martial Arts Council of America, and that is an international association for independent school owners and instructors. Uh, It is not style specific, open to any and everybody that's interested in furthering their career in the martial arts and having an opportunity to learn from like-minded people. 
Once a year, we gather for a three-day camp, and we typically do that in different cities across the country so that we've got an opportunity to kind of take that show on the road every year. And so we gather for three days. Everybody, regardless of whether you're 10th degree, first degree, or you're still a color belt, everybody gets to be a white belt for three days. And every hour, we have a different instructor, master level instructor, in teaching a different martial arts system. And we do that for three days, all day Thursday, all day Friday, half day on Saturday. So it's an incredible opportunity to crane and cross train. And then Saturday night, we have our Hall of Fame banquet where we have an opportunity to honor not just the big names in the martial arts. Mm -hmm. And we recognize a few of those. But one of the distinctions of the United States Martial Arts Hall of Fame is we want to recognize those individuals that are making a difference in their local community that may have never been recognized for 20, 30, 40 years of giving back to their local community. Wow. We've had an opportunity, Brian, to recognize some amazing individuals, men that have taught at a boys and girls club, women that have taught at a YMCA, people that have taught in their backyards or in the back of a business or in different areas that they've taught over the years. Many of them doing that for free to give back to underprivileged kids. Some incredible stories have come out of that. And it's my privilege every year to have the opportunity to welcome and thank those individuals for their incredible contributions to the global martial arts community. And how those individuals are found, uh, they're found a couple of different ways. We've got a group of regional directors that work with us. And then we have ambassadors that are representatives of some of the styles and systems that are part of our association. They look within the ranks of their connections to see if they can identify individuals that are worthy of being recognized. And then any of our alumni, any individual that's been inducted into the Hall of Fame has an opportunity to nominate another black belt school owner or instructor that they would like to recognize. Their names are given to us. We take that information. We disseminate it to a panel of high ranking black belts that does their review to make sure that they are legitimate, that there's a specific validated reason to bring them into the Hall of Fame. And then they're extended an invitation to join us for the banquet. Wow. And that's really cool. I love the way you have that set up and stuff. And I tell you, when, when we're done at the interview, I might have to pick your brain a little. And I mean, I'm assuming a lot of the people you've uh, inducted might be good possibilities for guests on my show that I'd probably love to, oh, hear. Absolutely. Love, love yes, to hear their stories. So yes, sir. <laughs> that's awesome. Yep. Okay. I will definitely keep that in mind. So now you mentioned now backing up just a little, you mentioned, you know, when you were a, a green belt, blue belt, and you started teaching women's self-defense and obviously you continued on teaching in, in through everything you do. How do you think your teaching style has changed over the years? Well, that's a great question. Uh, and it's really changed as my depth and understanding of the martial arts has changed. And when I started, you know, you teach to what you know, and you teach to the level that you've been trained. And one of the things that I made the commitment early on in my life, Brian, was to make sure that every day I'm having the opportunity to strive as best I can to become a better version of myself. And so as I've learned things from Kempo, as I've learned things from Jiu-Jitsu, as I've learned things from JKD, from Kung Fu, from all of the different systems I get an opportunity to play with and train with because of my relationship with IMAC and the Hall of Fame, I just like Bruce did when Bruce developed, he developed Jeet Kune Do, Bruce looked at multiple systems and took the best of what he believed worked well for him and incorporated that into that eclectic system that's really become a system in and of itself that's very flexible and adaptable. We saw the same with Krav. When Krav was developed, Erie Lipkin sent people around the world to study different martial arts, and they picked and chose the best of those and brought those back. And I've really done the same over the years is that I've looked at how can I continue to evolve and better serve the individuals that I have an opportunity to work with. 
And as a result of that, what I've taught has really adapted and changed. Not a lot, but I've added some subtle things because, you know, when you're dealing with women of different sizes, different shapes, different ages, you have to adapt. And when I had my schools and I was, I was a multi-location school owner, we would teach a 12-week women's self-defense class. And it was interesting when I had my very first student come in that was blind. She was a retired masseuse, lost her eyesight uh, during World War II as a child, uh, and it's been her entire life blind, but she wanted to learn self-defense. So it was a big stretch and a challenge to think into how do you teach someone that can't see how to defend themselves from an, an attack they can't see coming. Right. Wow. But it became very funny. We called her mom because she was old enough to be all of our moms and for some of us, our grandma. But once she got a hold of you, uh, it was like an anaconda had grabbed you. <laughs> and it was a standing joke before I'd get with the instructors. We would always say, OK, who's going to be mom's Uki tonight? Because whoever was mom's Uki was going to get the daylights beat out of them. <laughs> because once she grabbed you, that's the only way she could see you. And as long as she was holding on to you, she knew where you were. And she had one speed and that was full out 100% impact with everything she threw. Nice. I can't tell you how many nights I went home or one of the other instructors went home with a black eye or a bloody lip or a bruised rib or a dislocated finger Mm -hmm. or something from mom getting crazy on the floor. And I feared the man that ever decided in a Walmart parking lot, they wanted to jump mom (laughs) because she was going to kill him. Wow. I, you're, you're bringing back some memories. I used to help teach a lot of women's self-defense classes. And I remember I came home with a black eye and a, and a bloody nose and our instructor was very strict. He's like, if they, if they hit you and hurt you, you can't let them know that don't, don't, let, right. don't let them apologize. If they apologize, yell at them that this yeah. has to be real. And I remember the first yeah. time a, a, a woman hit me and she started, I'm like, don't apologize to me. I'm attacking you. And she swung back and hit, <laughs> she hit me again. I'm like, that's better. Yeah. 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 You know what I think back to, I, I spent 10 years doing a lot of teaching and training in schools and I don't get to do it near as much as I used to. And I miss it. My daughter's picked up that mantle and she's doing quite a bit of that now. Nice. But, uh, you know, I would go teach, you know, kids safe self-defense in school systems. And I remember doing workshops and training kids in self-defense and we'd train the kids that if somebody picked them up, you know, certain things to do, such as, you know, grab and scream in the attacker's ear just as loud as you can and do things to distract them mentally so they could then be, have the opportunity to do some type of physical strike to create the separation to get away. And a good friend came in from the military and I asked him if he'd be an Uki one night for one of the trainings we were doing with some kids in junior high. And we'd train the kids about this screaming technique. And he ran and grabbed a girl to pick her up. And I said, your job is to get the girl out the door of our dojo. And if you get her out the door of the dojo before she gets away, she's dead. And that was how we trained with the kids. Wow. And they had that, that distance of time. It was about 35, 40 feet to the door. And so they had that window to escape. And this big burly Marine picked this girl up and he took about three steps and she reached up and screamed as loud as she could right in his left ear. His eyes got about as big around as silver dollars. He dropped her and grabbed his ears. And then what did she do? She punches him in the crotch and lays him out on the floor. Dang! And I walked over and I said, dude, are you okay? And he's laughing his head off in between the tears. He said, John, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen in my life. He said, but please don't ask me to do this again. I, I, yeah, I do. I do miss it for the kids so that they understood if it's somebody trying to grab you and take you off Mm -hmm. that wants to harm you, this is potentially life and death. And the kids got it. And they became so confident by the time they finished our training 
it was like watching a flower open up and really bloom to its fullest that you could just see the confidence in these kids just swell over the 10 or 12 weeks they were in our program. It was just amazing to watch. That's great. See, we did mostly adult women in ours. And it, we, we did a thing where we, I, I believe ours was 12 weeks too. It was a while ago, but we did deal with my instructor would actually charge them for the 12 weeks. They, had, they signed a contract where if you don't miss any classes, you get your money back at the end of the class. And he only had to refund one person ever in like eight years. <laughs> so, wow. cause everyone showed up every class and it was, it was, yeah. But yeah. And it's interesting. Probably I would say a third between a third and half the women that went through our 12 week program ended up signing up in our martial arts because they wanted more. Nice. They discovered something unique, not only in the physical aspects, but we taught leadership as a very important part of what we taught in our school and teaching people how to lead themselves well and make good choices and learn to become an individual of great character in the way they live their lives. And they wanted that. And oftentimes they had their kids enrolled in our program because they wanted their kids to learn to be respectful, to learn to be disciplined, to learn what it meant to have real character and real values and not only value themselves, but learn to value other people and treat other people with dignity and respect. Nice. And that was just such an amazing thing that I still see. And one of the young men that bought one of the schools from me and still runs it that he's doing exceptionally well is he's raising what I call black belt leaders in life. And one of the things I talk about in my book, Black Belt Leadership, is exactly that. If we're a school owner and all we're teaching our students is punching and kicking, are we really making them a black belt leader? Because in traditional Okinawan martial arts, I don't know if you know this or not, Brian, but when you would go to a grandmaster and want to train, typically for the first year, you didn't learn a lot of martial arts. Yep. You were there to get physically in, in shape, but you were also asked to serve that grandmaster. And you earned discipline. You learned respect. You learned to be honorable. But they also began to teach you the values of leadership. And until you demonstrated that you, you were an individual of great value, and an individual of character that would not abuse what you were about to be taught, they wouldn't teach you the martial arts. They taught you some very basic things, but real instruction wasn't taught until you demonstrated that you were teachable and that you were going to be willing to live a lifestyle that honored the instructor. That's great. And I'm glad you mentioned your book. I want to get to that, but one quick question first. So if someone asks you, what style do you study? What do you tell them with, with, your, with your blend of stuff? What, what do you tell them your style is? You know, if they ask, I say, these are my roots. Okay. But when it comes to the martial arts, I am a student of the martial arts. Nice. I believe that I can learn from any instructor. And anytime I have an opportunity to be with an instructor, regardless of what style they teach, there's always something I can learn that I can add to the wealth of knowledge that I've been privileged to learn from some incredible masters and grandmasters over the years. And so I am a lifelong student of martial arts. Nice. I like that answer. So now, like we said, we mentioned your book. First of all, what came first, the public speaking or the book? And what led to you writing that first book? Public speaking started for me. Okay. Uh, I grew up, my dad, I'm a preacher's kid. I'm an army brat, firstborn son. So my mom jokingly says I had three strikes against me, but I still turned out okay. <laughs> uh, but because of that, I learned public speaking early because dad had me teaching in the small church that he built and then in later churches that he served in. Oh, okay. So I had the opportunity to begin to teach there. Uh, and I found just a natural ability to speak and to teach. And that's something that I was actually writing plays when we were in elementary school 
that we were performing on stage. And I'm talking full length, three act, four act plays that we were writing. I started doing television commercials in the fourth grade. And so public speaking for me just became something that was a natural outreach of who I am because I I tend to be a somewhat outgoing kind of guy. But out of that, my dad, when I was early, I guess I was 12 or 13, my dad, who loves to read, wanted to instill that art in me. And my dad gave me two books, John Maxwell's book, Developing the Leader Within You. And he gave me Napoleon Hill's Think and Grow Rich. Nice. And dad said, I want you to read these books and I want you to write me a report. So I know you read the book and then I will pay you for the report. Wow. And it was one of the ways my dad began to teach me to read and to garner information from that. And as I started writing, I discovered not only was I good at speaking, I had an incredible gift to take words and put it into a written form in such a way that I could convey information that people could understand. Okay. And so I wrote my very first book, which was actually a book on finances and to teach people how to manage money uh, back in the early 90s. Uh, that book literally is now in its fourth edition. It's called Dollars and Cents, and it's available on Amazon. But that book has literally gone around the world and actually had a Bible college pick that book up to teach pastors how to teach money management skills that they could teach to people in their churches and was so honored to have that done. Uh, Went on to write a a complimentary book to that, really a workbook to teach people how to get out of debt and save money so they could retire as a millionaire. Uh, The third book I wrote, uh, the schools that I owned, I had three martial arts schools. They were all uniquely faith-based in a retail location, which was somewhat interesting. Uh, We didn't, you know, we told folks that we weren't going to proselyte their kids, but our leadership principles we taught were going to be based on the principles of the Bible. And interestingly enough, we had kids that were Muslim. We had kids that were uh, Buddhist. We had kids that were Hindu. We had kids from every major religion and some with no religion at all that their parents were perfectly fine with what we taught because we weren't trying to shove religion down their throats. We were teaching their kids to learn to lead themselves well and make good choices. But out of that, I had a number of school owners come to say, I love what you're doing in your school. How do I do that? And after being asked multiple times, I decided I'm going to write a book. And so I wrote a book called Christian Martial Arts, The Passion, The Calling, The Journey. And for people who have a perchance towards being a faith-based martial artist, and living out their faith and their practice, I gave them a how-to guide of how to do that, whether they're teaching it in a church, they're teaching it in a community center, or they're doing it in a retail location. So the fourth book that came out was a number one new release. It was a number one bestseller the day it released on Amazon and stayed on the bestsellers list for three months last year. It's called Black Belt Leadership. And that was really a soul-searching over my taking over the United States Martial Arts Hall of Fame in 2016. And as I looked at the state of the martial arts community and I saw what we were doing, we're putting out some great martial arts students. They can compete at a very high level. I mean, we see kids go to NASCA and we see them do some incredible things in the tournament circuit. Mm -hmm. We teach them how to defend themselves so that they can fight back against an attacker. Uh, We teach them a little bit of character. We teach them how to do katas. We teach them how to punch and kick. But at the end of the day, if we weren't teaching themselves the important skill sets They needed to learn to live life to its fullest and truly learn what it means to be to be a black belt leader in life, to learn to lead themselves well and make good choices so that they can later lead their family well. They can later lead in a business environment. If they want to start their own business, they can lead their employees well. I felt like we were failing as school owners and instructors. And so I initially wrote that book 
as a guide to school owners that they can teach in their schools to teach their students what it means to be a black belt leader. And, and interestingly enough, as I was working on that book, the CEO of John Maxwell Enterprises is Mark Cole. Mark's a personal friend. And as I was sharing the book and the resources with Mark, Mark looked across the table from me as we were at a conference together. And he said, John, you're thinking too small. He said, not only does the martial arts community need this, corporate America needs this too. Because who in corporate America doesn't want to be a black belt master at their craft? And so from that, I went back and rewrote the book in its entirety. And when I released it, March of 2020, right in the middle of the pandemic, I thought, what a horrible time to release a book. But it was the number one best-selling book that day. And for the next three months, it stayed on the bestsellers list. Wow. And the majority of folks that bought the book weren't martial arts schools, although a bunch of them did initially. In the second and third month, it was corporate America wanting to learn how they can become a black belt master at their craft or their trade, or even in their own personal lives, so they could be a better leader in the organization that they were leading. That's great. And then I noticed you have another one on here on negotiation too. I just noticed that I'm, uh, I had a lot yeah. of friends in my, in my other business. I do a lot of friends that are always asking questions about negotiation because I'm, I'm good at it, but I'm like, I might actually start sending them the link to your book. Yeah. That book just released in October. It, it I was fortunate enough. That's my second number one best-selling book on day one release nice. that I've had with Amazon. It was on the bestsellers list for about a month and a half, almost two months. And that was a book that I taught specifically being asked by corporate America uh, about negotiation skills and how can we have an opportunity to get more of what we want out of life without having to pay more in the process. And so that book was really written to two audiences is I wrote the book for corporate America to learn how to negotiate better, but also in that we're negotiating every single day. I've got six kids. And I've got a wife. And if you don't think you're negotiating every day with six kids wanting to borrow the car to go somewhere or what time they're going to come home or what they're going to do here and there, we're negotiating and we're bartering every single day. Some of that is if I'm going to buy a new car or I'm looking at trying to figure out how to work with a vendor that I'm trying to buy equipment for a business or supplies for a business, we negotiate all the time. And if we can learn to become a better negotiator, we understand it's truly the art of the win-win so that at the end of the day, I want to help the other person get what they want. So in turn, they're going to help me get what I want. So we both walk away from the bargaining table being a winner. Nice. And so that book, as well as my book, Black Belt Leadership, both of those have also become online courses that are available through my website, beablackbeltleader.com, cool. that allows you to take the books, but also if you want to go deeper then there's additional training content available that can help individuals do that as well. Awesome. And I will definitely put a link for all this stuff in the show notes when we, when we wrap it up here. That's, that's, I was just looking at the courses right now, as you were saying that, and some of these look pretty cool. So I'll definitely share those links for you. Talk a little bit about the podcast. When did, when did the idea for that come? Obviously, you know, it seems like over the pandemic podcasts were popping up everywhere. So what made you decide to, to try to do one and, and get the, get something out there in a podcast form? You know, that's actually my second podcast. Oh. Uh, part of what I do is I'm a, I'm a coach and consultant, and I've been doing coaching and consulting for well over 30 years. Okay. And so one of the, the neat things I bring to martial arts school owners and instructors that join our association is they have an opportunity to tap into three decades of coaching and leadership, sales and marketing, communication, influence in a variety of areas that my team and I coach in. And that's part of what individuals get as being a member of our group. 
but I've been doing a podcast for the last three years, specifically focused on helping individuals learn how to become masters at selling. And out of that, I've been teaching that to corporate America and to a lot of individuals that sell for a living, either through a retail establishment or they sell financial services or they sell something to the public. And that's been a resource to help them in that arena. But as I started working on the book and I started rolling the book out and then developing the course, one of the things I wanted to do was to have an opportunity to sow into the lives of people and share what I'm learning from other incredible people. I have an opportunity to hang out that are world-class leaders in their own right. And so I developed this podcast to, to really give back and on a weekly basis to say, this is what I'm learning about leadership. This is what I'm learning about influence or communication or sales and marketing or whatever I'm learning from the individuals that are speaking into my life and helping me become a better version of me. And that podcast is one of the ways that I can give back to an audience to say, this is what I'm learning and I want to share it with you so you can learn what I'm learning and add it to what you're learning. So you've got an opportunity to leapfrog your knowledge and the application of that. So you too can become a better version of yourself every single day so that you can truly continue on that journey to live a life of black belt excellence. Nice. So you're like me, you, you like, definitely like staying busy. I can tell. <laughs> oh yeah. You know, my, my, somebody asked me how, how many hours a week I work and I said, well, on a typical week, it's around 80 hours a week wow. on a slow week. It's about 70. <laughs> nice. And they looked at me and I'm like, you know, I'm one of these guys that I love to work. And when I love what I do, it doesn't seem like work. Exactly. And I'm very entrepreneurial in the way I live my life. My wife is a seamstress. Uh, she does interior design. She's phenomenal at what she does. And so she does what she does well. I do what I do well. And we create those opportunities for us to get together and, and spend time together and do things. And now that all of my six kids are grown, then we're really sowing our energy and effort into doing one thing. And that's doing what leaders do, and that's develop other leaders to create legs to a legacy so that what's within me doesn't die with me. It gets passed on to others nice. who can take that and use it to lead themselves and to also lead others well. That's great. I like that's a great outlook to have. So, all right, let me ask you this. Someone approaches you. They've never done martial arts in their life, and they want advice. I'm thinking of getting involved in martial arts. What do I look for? What are some tips you give them what to look for, maybe what to avoid in schools and instructors? I encourage them when they go to see a school owner is to watch class and not just one to visit two, three, four times and to watch how the instructor treats the students, have interactions with the staff and see how the staff treats you and then interview some of the students to ask the students their opinion of the school, good and bad. What do you like about the school? What do you not like about the school? And get the feedback of multiple people. And I say you need to look for a martial arts school that's going to serve your needs. If your goal in the martial arts is to compete, then you want to find a school that has students that are competing at a very high level and that they've got an opportunity to be able to teach you to do what they do. But at the same time, they've got to be honest enough that if your skill set isn't such that you can do that, they don't need to take your money. They need to tell you that up front. If your goal and your objective is to be self-defense oriented, you got to do that. You've got to find a school that's going to focus on that. And then I will share some examples of, you know, if you're looking for competitive 
and you want to go into the tournament circuit, look at a taekwondo school. I mean, they really do well in that arena compared to a lot of the other schools and styles that are out there. If you're looking for self-defense, then maybe it's you're looking for Krav or you're looking for KPAP or you're looking for JKD or something that is very self-defense oriented. If you're looking for the traditions and you want the traditions of the martial arts, look for Shorin Ru, look for Goju, look for Shotokan, look for Mudokwan, look for some of the older traditional systems that are out there that you can learn the traditions of the arts as well as the katas and the forms to have an ability to really learn what's been taught for the last 100 to 200 years and be a part of that lineage and history. But you've really got to find at the end of the day what works for you. And I also encourage people, do your homework in the instructor. Who did they train with? What is their background and their lineage? Do a background check to make sure that that individual is a person of good character and that they don't have a criminal history. They don't have a history of complaints. They don't have people, you know, voicing concerns about things that they may have done to students that have caused them to move from one state to another to flee a bad reputation. Make sure you're getting in a quality school that's going to serve your needs and serve them well. I love that answer. So now you spent you know, most of your career in, in traditional and self-defense based martial arts. So I'm curious, what are your thoughts on MMA, the UFC, and are you a fan? Uh, I am a fan of the UFC. And in, in one of the volunteer things I do, one of my best friends is actually the Arkansas State Athletic Director. Ah. And so I'm licensed as an inspector for any combat arts that take place in Arkansas. And as a result of that, anytime there is a cage fighting venue or a kickboxing venue or a boxing venue, I have an opportunity to be part of the team that helps make sure that the state's rules are followed at those events. And so my daughter and my son, both of whom are martial arts instructors in their own right, uh, they're also licensed. So it's become a family affair for us. Uh, But what's interesting for me, uh, as I've watched the progression of the martial arts in the UFC reality-based world over the years, I've seen initially when we started out, it started out as a proving ground for which martial arts system is better. And so, you know, you saw Hoist Gracie and you saw other greats that came in with their style and their system. And you begin to see this this pecking order of who could beat who on any given day. And then they codified it, developed rules, and and you, you saw the system evolve and change. And for a period of time, they lost connection to their roots. And as a result of that, there was kind of a disdain for the martial arts that really precipitated bringing that to the forefront. But as I've had an opportunity to work with a lot of these young men and young women that are now working their way up to get an opportunity to fight in the UFC or one of the other venues that are there, I'm seeing now a very great appreciation for the traditions that led them to the place that they're getting able to take aspects of the martial arts and break those out and learn to use those in, in a unique style of sport combat that's been very interesting. And many of the, the individuals in the circuits that I get the opportunity to work that are winning in the MMA circuits all have a very strong traditional background that that was where they trained first and then they transitioned into the MMA world. And those are the people I believe are going to have longevity in, in this new sport arena that is really taking the world by storm. And so I've really appreciated what I've seen that they have learned to validate and appreciate their heritage. And and Brian, I remember one group asked me to come in and they were doing an MMA camp Uh and they invited me to come in to teach. And I'm like, guys, I don't do MMA. What do you want me to teach? And they said, we want you to teach kata. And I I love to teach kata. I love to teach bunkai and and show the self-defense elements 
of what the traditional katas mean and how we use those in a self-defense setting. And I said, why do you want me to teach that? And I loved what the leadership of this group said. We want them to appreciate where their MMA came from. Nice. And so I taught them a child's kata, what we call our nine-step kata, basic one we teach four and five-year-olds in our school. Mm -hmm. And then I began to break the movements down. And I said, let me explain what this down block actually means, what this high block actually means. And then I began to relate that to the tactics that they use in the cage. And all of a sudden you'd see mouths open and eyes get big. And I didn't realize that. I didn't know that's where that came from. And for many of them that had never been exposed to traditional martial arts, they walked away with an appreciation for these 200 year plus traditions of traditional kata and traditional martial arts actually now realizing where reality-based martial arts had its origin. I love that. That's awesome. That's actually really cool. You got to do that. Yeah. It was so exciting to do that. Yeah. Nice. So I always ask for, for people to pick one, but usually people can't pick one. So they usually name one or two or three, but if you had to pick one or two martial artists, it doesn't have to be someone you've trained with. It can be, or someone you've never met or have met, but just one or two that you just truly admire that you put on the top of your list. Of the people I put on the top of my list, one of those would have to be Grandmaster Richard Bastillo, who passed away. Nice. He was a consummate gentleman, but he represented not just excellence in the martial arts, but excellence in leadership and excellence in life. And, and I have to give homage there because if I look back at over the individuals for me that have really shaped my life, he was one of those guys that I have to say he was there at the right time. But not only did it for me, he was a truly global ambassador for the martial arts, loved what he did and loved being an ambassador to introduce the martial arts in a new way that always made it fresh every time he taught it. So I would say Richard Bastillo would be one of those. And if I were to honor a second individual, it would probably be, I would have to say Tak Kubota. Ah, nice. And had the opportunity to train with Tak Kubota, had an opportunity to be a member of IKA for a number of years. And one of my instructors uh, that was one of my Shorn Ru instructors over the years was an IKA instructor. And we've had an opportunity to honor Tak Kubota at the Hall of Fame. And he's been in my home. We've had an opportunity to spend time. He's taught in my school. And just another one of those individuals that is an old school martial artist, but actually goes beyond just teaching the martial arts to want to speak into your life and make sure you understand how to live life to the fullest and embrace what it means to be a true martial artist. So those are those are my top two that I would immediately say are right there at the tops of who I'd want to pay special homage to. Two great answers, definitely. All right, so you've obviously been doing this a long time. Is there any philosophies you've learned throughout your journey in martial arts, maybe one or two that are just super important, you keep coming back to, you make sure you teach yourself to other students and everything. One maybe really important philosophy you've learned. Yeah, two, and, and okay. really they're one in the same. There is no finish line. If you are going to be a martial artist, there is no finish line. You don't get to the black belt. That is not the pinnacle of career. Think of it as climbing a ladder. You climb the ladder from white belt to black belt, and then you switch to another ladder. And now you have an opportunity to climb, and that black belt ladder never ends. It is an endless ladder that you have an opportunity to climb the rest of your life. And because of that is the second philosophy that I love to teach, is that not only is there no finish line, you are never a master of the martial arts, no matter how good you get, because there's always something more to learn. 
a true martial artist doesn't see themselves as a master. They see themselves as a perpetual student. And when you can embrace the fact that there is no finish line and that you're going to be a perpetual student teaching what you know to the best of your ability, but also striving to learn something else that you can add to what you're teaching, you, in my opinion, have truly become what it means to be a black belt leader in life. That's another one. That's one my favorite question because I've never had the same answer on that one. So I love that question. All right. We got a few fun ones to wrap it up. So this one, you obviously can't pick a book that you wrote, but do you have a favorite martial arts book? One of the very first books I read was one of the books that were written by Bruce Tegner, and it was Every Boy's Self-Defense. One of the first books I got when I was learning martial arts, and my dad bought me that book just before we moved from Fort Smith to Russellville, Arkansas. And I kept that book and referred to that even as I was learning martial arts over the years. And that was really one of the foundational books for me in terms of getting me started on my journey of learning what it means to be a martial artist. And so I would just have to go back to that original book as really being for me a launch point for my love of the martial arts. Okay. Do you have a favorite martial arts TV show? I was a big fan of the original Kung Fu series. And I loved the Kwai Chang Kane story because I could see the underdog story in that. And I'm a big fan of the underdog having an opportunity to fight their way through triumph and tragedy and have an opportunity to live out their lives. And I just thought that was a very well done story. And then years later, learning the backstory that that was actually something that Bruce Lee developed and actually created that storyline and the characters behind it. But unfortunately, the TV studios didn't believe that America was ready for a oriental martial artist to step into that role. And as a result of that, David Carradine took the role. But that was the role that, in my opinion, would have put Bruce Lee really in his perfect story to tell the story of his life. And, and I still go back and watch some of those old episodes, and that's just one of my favorite go-to TV series. Nice. So anytime a guest picks that one, I always have to ask the question, did you ever watch the sequel series that came out in the early 90s with uh, David Carradine as, I think it was Kwai Chang Kane's great-great-grandson and his son who was a cop in San Francisco? I watched an episode or two okay. of that. I never really was, was as much a fan of that as I was the original. Yeah. But I kept going back because I loved – Uh, especially the old blind monk, Master Poe. Yes. And I always loved the wisdom and the simplicity of the wisdom that he brought uh, to Kwai Chang as a young cadet, you know, a a young Padawan learning the martial arts, that there was just a simplicity about what he taught that I thought was just so brilliant in the way that they put that storyline together. So have you ever, have you watched the new series, um, Warrior? I have not. No, with the work I do right now, TV for me is a rare commodity and it's on a, a very brief occasion that if I get to watch 30 minutes or an hour of television two or three times a week, that's it. Yeah. Well, I'd say if you get the chance, cause that one is actually what Kung Fu was supposed to be. They basically Shannon Lee took Bruce Lee's original notes and everything. And that's how they created the show warrior. So I think you, I Mm -hmm. think you'd appreciate it. Yeah. My son is in the middle of going through that right now. And he's telling me the same thing, dad, you've got to go binge watch this. Yep. And uh, so yeah, Shannon's done a great job and I've heard nothing but just positives out of that. But hopefully during this, I've got some downtime coming up after Christmas for a few days. And I do want to carve out a day or two just to, just to go binge and kept up on a couple of things. And that's one of those that's on my list to get to. All right. Final one, favorite martial arts movie. 
favorite martial art? Boy, there's a bunch of them out there that I could pick. I think really the one that of recent history that I really appreciated was the Forbidden Kingdom with Jackie yeah. Chan and Jet Li. That's a great one. And I thought that movie just really did a phenomenal job in honoring what they've done as martial artists and as movie stars to really help bring the martial arts to the forefront and keep it there. But I thought the storyline of, of the Monkey King uh, that was developed in and through that was just such a great story. And it was just a really good movie. Another good answer. Cool. John, I just want to thank you. First of all, before, before I let you go, anything that I've missed that you want to make sure I, I mentioned that you have you know coming up or, or that we need to discuss really quick or. You know, the only thing I would mention, Brian, is for those interested in learning more about our association, I'd encourage them to visit us at IMAC, IMACUSA.com or United States Martial Arts Hall of Fame.com. Every July, we typically, the third week of July, we do a three-day training camp. It's open to anybody, whether they're a white belt or a 10th degree black belt. It's an incredible opportunity to train and have an opportunity just to come together with like-minded martial artists, leave your ego at the door and a chance just to train, cross-train, and build some incredible relationships with some amazing martial artists from around the world. I would just encourage the folks to, you know, if they want to come and watch, come watch. If they want to come train, come train. But think about coming and being a part of that because it's an opportunity for you to connect with other people that are passionate, just like your audience is about the martial arts, and an opportunity to grow themselves as school owners. And for those that want to learn how to grow themselves, BeABlackBeltLeader.com. I'd encourage them to go visit that. Check out the book. I would love them to pick that up. And uh, with that, I want to wish your audience, you know, an incredible 2022. And let me leave you with this. Everybody is leading someone somewhere right now. The question is, how well are you leading? So I want to challenge your leaders that are listening to this to look within themselves. And whether they believe they're leading or not, they are because everybody's leading somebody. So look within yourself and discover the black belt leader lurking within. And once you discover it, develop and deploy it to go make a positive difference in the world. I love it. Great way to end it. Once again, I appreciate your time and, and truly an honor to have you on the show. Hey, thank you so much for the invitation. And uh, I appreciate the opportunity to share. Thanks for listening to Everyday Martial Artist. We hope you will join us every week for a brand new episode with a different martial artist telling their story. If you enjoy the show, be sure to leave us a review. Also, be sure to check out our website at everydaymartialartist.com. There you can find all of our episodes and contact us to suggest guests and ask questions. Again, thanks for listening to Everyday Martial Artist, and we'll see you next week.